This is ultimately the financial inclusion product everyone's looking for. The lender actually takes real credit risk and simultaneously the lender's not taking so much credit risk that any individual consumer is that much of a harm to them. You can start lending to much lower FICO scores on these particular types of loans and actually see score improvement. Everyone wants to go back to this idea of like, oh, well, we want to report rent and utilities. And that's not necessarily a bad idea, but it's not nearly as impactful as an actual installment loan. Whether you're talking about score improvement from a buy now, pay later point of view or any of these different products, until people have accurate credit reports, there's not really much you can do to actually improve their scores. Hi, everyone. It's Julie Verhage Greenberg here with your Tux Time podcast from FinTech Today, where we talk about all things FinTech. And in this episode, I am joined by Matt Harris, the founder of Bloom Credit, not to be confused with yet another Matt Harris that is involved in FinTech. So we have not had him on the podcast yet. He'd, he'd be a good guest, too. We should get him on as well. Um, just not at the same time. That would get way too confusing. <laughs> or definitely um, but- at the same time. uh vote tell us on twitter if you want to see them both at the same time but uh so a couple days ago all right yeah i guess it is a couple days ago now because it was sunday we're filming this on tuesday even though you're listening to it on thursday square jack dorsey's payments company announced that it was going to acquire afterpay a buy now pay later company based in australia for $29 billion in stock. And that got my wheels turning, both mine and other people on Twitter, just asking about the ramifications of that and just sort of diving into buy now, pay later and credit in particular, which is why I wanted to bring you on, Matt, because I understand a little bit about credit, mostly just in the fact that like how to make my credit score go up or down, essentially. Um, whereas you really understand credit, like your company that you founded is very much based on the ways that the current system works and how it's evolving. So I'm excited to dive into this. And I think everybody's going to learn a lot on this podcast. So when you saw this deal happen, what were your sort of general takeaways as just someone in fintech, as well as, you know, getting your wheels turning on this buy now, pay later space? Well, I think I think the joke I made on Twitter was that I have opinions, but I'd have to give them to you in installments. So, so <laughs> I guess this is Good installment one. one, installment one of several. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, to be honest, uh, like my opinion was a little bit of confusion, um, and that Square actually has a lot of the raw ingredients to do what Afterpay does themselves, and so a lot of it was just me attempting to figure out. It's like, all right, well. Uh, what what calculus did Square come to to come to the decision that it it needs to acquire Afterpay? Is it because they want to add customers that they don't think they have already intersected through Cash App? Is it because uh, they see Afterpay as being able to underwrite a product they're not able to underwrite? Is it because Afterpay has some competitive advantage in the capital market space that Square may not have? There were a bunch of things that that I was tempted to figure out. I think I think the answer is that there's a there's a lot more questions for me than there are like like firm definitive opinions. Um, and so, and maybe, maybe that informs my opinion of that. Like, I think, I think in a lot of instances by now, pay leaders are actually, you know, I wouldn't say non-trivial to launch, but they are actually among the easier lending products to launch and market. So there's a little bit of confusion about why they chose to do that. Um, that being said, I mean, I think, I think it's ultimately going to be a really big thing for Square and given how much merchant uh, kind of penetration they have and kind of getting into a different uh, segment of customers um, in terms of like maybe getting a little bit more after e-commerce customers that they may not have as much um, experience working with in that regard, given a lot of their customers are likely brick and mortar. That also made some sense to me in some regards. So I guess that's like, that's probably like my, 
my to the TLDR my opinion is that like there's a lot more questions I have about it. There's a lot of things I suspect Square probably has the capability to do themselves. Um, and that ultimately might just be the type of thing where it's like one plus one equals two and Square plus Afterpay ultimately becomes a much larger service where acquiring some of Afterpay's merchants might give them more cross-selling opportunities within, you know, Square's core services and um, vice versa and things like that. So, so um, a lot to be determined based on how Square chooses to leverage it, um, whether it's just a, hey, we're acquiring a new product we couldn't do ourselves type of deal or whether it's a, like, hey, we think that our customer bases ultimately multiply each other and make things more valuable. So something that you mentioned in your previous answer that I want to dive into a little bit more is that a buy now, pay later company is easier to start than a lot of other companies in fintech. And in my mind, I would think it'd be pretty hard too, although I guess there's a lot of companies in fintech that are extremely hard to start. So tell me a little bit about what gives you that thinking. Like, why is it so much easier to start a buy now, pay later company? Yeah. And, and I, think, I think, you know, it's worth noting every type of company to start in fintech is hard. Um, um, and so, and so, uh, you know, they're, they're all quite complicated. Part of the reason why buy now pay later can be a little bit easier than other types of companies that are in credit is basically two variables. The first is that, um, because the loans revolve really quickly, you have a lot less risk being taken than a a traditional type of lending product, which might be anywhere between like a 36 to 72 month period, or if it's revolving, it's something that you might have that consumer on your your book forever type of deal. Uh, And the other side is the actual amount of cash that it takes to actually get those products up and running. So when you're talking about like, hey, you know, I'm trying to get this new credit card company up and running, you know, a company like Petal or Jasper may need to raise like $50 million for their first, uh, you know, debt facility in order to get moving. A company like, you know, quad pay or after pay or a firm might have needed to raise something much smaller just to even get started and start testing things. And in fact, in a lot of instances, they're usually testing on equity value. Um, and part of the reason for that is that when you're looking at something like, you know, if I'm doing a, uh, a you know, a pedal card and I'm trying to do a $10,000, you know, credit limit, I need a lot more cash on hand to actually be able to manage that program versus something like, you know, quad pay or after pay or something like that, it might do a $300 loan, which revolves basically over a, you know, three to six month period. So the cash ends up back in quad pays debt facility a lot faster. Um, and so the result is that there's a lot less needed to get moving. Part of that's also just the way that those loans are underwritten. It's like when you're talking about something that's like, you know, an unsecured personal loan or an unsecured credit card, those companies are looking at hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of data points. Whereas something like a buy now, pay later, we find one, most of them don't even do any level of underwriting. Um, and we can get into why they don't do some underwriting later in terms of how the economics work and why actually sometimes it just makes sense to get traction. Um, and the other side of that is that when they do do underwriting, um, you know, they probably do look at a lot of different variables like i know a firm talks a lot about how they use social media data and things like that but ultimately buy now pay later can be underwritten with some pretty standard stuff um and really what that is is just how much cash do you have on hand and uh you know what is your existing revolving utilization if your revolving utilization falls under the loan amount that is going to be issued most times a buy now pay later feels comfortable making that loan because they're like cool this consumer has five thousand dollars worth of credit limit on hand um, we're issuing them a loan for $350. It's going to come back in three months. Chances are in that three months, they're not going to run out of some source of spending for their life. And so we are likely to get paid back. So the result being is that there's a much simpler calculation to be made. Whereas like a, you know, a company that's doing interpersonal loans might take two or three years of like testing their underwriting models against actual, you know, loans that they've made either an equity value or a really small debt facility in order to even get to the point where they feel like they have that insight. Um, and so that's that's a big part of the reason for that. And I think that's why you've seen, you know, there's there's countless buy now pay later products in market at the moment. 
Um, you know, we, we talked about the big ones, quad pay, affirm, uh, after pay, things like that. But like, there's another 15 that don't get talked about that also have pretty decent penetration. So uh, something else that I don't think a lot of people know, and I don't think I even realized for a while, like I, I knew about affirm and others partially because I own a Peloton bike, and that's one of their largest partners. Um, but when you use one of these buy now, pay later products, rather than using a credit card, it's often not reported to credit bureaus. Talk to us a little bit about that, because I think a lot of people assume that it is. And if you have a high buy now, pay later balance, that it's going to hurt you. If you don't pay it back, it's going to hurt you. And in many cases, like they might not ever come after you. It's not going to get reported as part of your, your balance. There's you know, not much that can hurt you on that front. Correct. Yeah. And I think there's a couple of reasons for this. Um, historically speaking, the bureaus have been hesitant to take on uh, reporting from buy now, pay laters, because historically speaking, the bureaus have a little bit of an issue with small dollar loans. Um, I think we see this changing a lot because I think the bureaus have realized that uh, the, the consumer behavior is changing. And so therefore taking on a like $150 payment over six months actually is something that is like a real legitimate loan in this market because it's really changing the behavior from what is usually people holding balances on revolving debt to now people now paying them off a little bit more um, you know, sequentially through buy now, pay later stuff. So that's historically a part of the reason why that doesn't get reported. I think the reason you're seeing that now um, is because for a buy now, pay later, there's really two things behind that. Um, the first is is that the, the degree to which these loans are serviced is pretty small. Um, and the reason being is that in most instances, if you're like, cool, I have an entire loan book where the vast majority are paying me back or something of that instance, and I'm going to go through the process of trying to uh, recover maybe like $150, it's more expensive to attempt to recover the delinquent loan than it is to actually go and try to just let it charge off. Um, and so part of that expense is actually like setting up a lot of the programs to go and report that. Um, and so when you actually look at Metro 2 reporting, um, Metro 2 reporting takes a really long time to set up. For a lot of lenders, it takes anywhere between 12 to like 18 months and doing it with all three bureaus takes a really long time. All three of them have different, even though it's the same reporting standard, all three of them have different manners of which you set it up. They have different membership processes. So usually what we hear is that a lot of lenders that want to report to all three bureaus, it can take them years to do. And so if actually going and getting access to the reporting as a means of getting a better collection rate is going to take you a really long time for a buy now, pay later, the economics actually just don't make sense. Um, yeah. And I mentioned that like the downsides aren't there, but also the upsides aren't there either. A lot of people that don't have access to credit, but are able to use a buy now, pay later product, uh, like they can't use that to help their credit score or create a credit score right. to begin with either. Correct. Yeah. And, and I think, I think this has been, uh, and you know, we've, we've, We've talked to you a bunch of the buy now, pay leaders, and so we can say with some certainty that they're aware of this issue and that they're looking into it. However, what typically ends up happening with a lot of the different bureau, um, with a lot of different bureau infrastructure, you know, building out is that most companies choose not to build it out because of the fact that the amount of time it takes to build out a lot of the infrastructure is more than it makes sense to commit your roadmap to. And so, for example, it's like we find that a lot of lenders that add a second bureau increase their underwritable audience by about 30% and their loan volume usually increases by about 10%. The reason they don't do it on their own is because it's going to take them, you know, something like, I don't know, 12 to 18 months to go do that. And so the amount of time you commit doesn't really make sense there. I think the other reason why, which which um, I, meant to, I meant to touch on in that last point in terms of like why the lender doesn't necessarily want to take the upside or give the upside to the client is because what they also are taking on when they furnish this liability. 
And so uh, buy now, pay later is a super thin margin business. And so if they're going to ultimately eat into their liability by reporting incorrectly because they've set up their metro true reporting standards poorly, that's going to be something that they're going to try to avoid. And it's also on their end, something they want to avoid for the consumer because they don't want to be like, hey, we made a bunch of errors on these consumers credit reports. And that's actually kept them from being able to even get access to other loans in some capacity. And so what we find is that this like metro true reporting standard thing, given the economics of buy now, pay later, given the amount of time it takes to set up, it's something that a lot of them have chosen not to do and almost using that like historical guides of like bureaus traditionally haven't taken this as kind of a shield or cover for reasoning why they don't do it. Um, but I think what we're going to see is one, a lot of regulation is going to start pointing to the degree to which a lot of these lenders have to start doing this. And also, and you know, you know, Bloom, Bloom announced a product that we do this today. There's going to be companies that come in and be like, hey, we're going to make this significantly simpler. So we're setting up, um, you know, furnishment with all three bureaus is something that would have taken years before. Now with Bloom, it takes about a month or two. And so um, we're seeing some things around that change, but ultimately it's like the buy now pay leaders are aware that it's not a good system. They're aware they need to do something to change it, but because they don't, they're afraid of taking on the liability of making errors because it takes them so much time, they traditionally push it off. Got it. And you mentioned this furnishment, which you guys just launched um, today. When I think of that, I just moved. So I think of furniture, but that's very much not what it is. So explain what this is a little bit. <laughs> sure. Um, so every single time uh, that you make an on-time payment with any lender, um, it goes through something called the Metro 2 report, which is reported out to the CDIA, which is the group of basically like uh, CRAs in the country that accept those that type of data, um, which is what ultimately impacts your credit score. And so every single time you make an on-time payment to Amex or Bank of America or JP Morgan or something like that, um, really what you end up having is that the reason why that gets back to the credit bureaus is because they fill out a Metro 2 report, um, which, which ultimately allows the credit bureaus to ingest the data and update your score as such. Um, now this standard is decades old, multiple, multiple decades old. A lot of it is written in, uh, what can only be described as Metro two COBOL. So, uh, if you hire a COBOL contractor and you're like, Hey, build my new Metro two reporting system, they're actually going to have to learn the new language anyway, because it's not the same as COBOL. And so, um, it was written in the super custom standard. And so what ends up happening a lot of the time is when you end up doing furnishment, you have to not only like take it from your system of record, which is written in Python or go, or something like that, translate it into this Metro 2 COBOL, basically fill out something like, you know, I think it's something like 250 fields, but I could be off on that number by a little bit, um, 250 fields of data on that consumer. Um, you then have to do five separate compliance checks against every single field between FCRA and ECOA, and you want to automate that process, and then you want to translate it back into your system of record. So there's a lot of opportunity for breakage, which is ultimately a reason why a lot of lenders make errors. Um, and yeah, so, I was like, just going to say, that seems like a recipe for a lot of errors. You guys have a, a stat from a consumer report study that found that more than 34% of consumers discovered inaccuracies on their credit reports in 2020. That's near, That's a third of people. Correct. And, and even, even worse. So over the pandemic errors doubled. And so I think, I think like, you know, bringing this back to the buy now, pay later thing, there's a really big opportunity here to actually create uh, on-time reporting standards that make it really easy for consumers uh, to go start improving their credit scores. Because when you get access to these things, it's like, look, this is, this is ultimately the financial inclusion product everyone's looking for. Um, the lender actually takes real credit risk, which allows the consumer to positively select themselves for being a good behavior. And simultaneously, the lender's not taking so much credit risk that any individual consumer is that much of a harm to them. You can start lending to much lower FICO scores on these particular types of loans and actually see score improvement. Everyone wants to go back to this idea of like, oh, well, we want to report rent and utilities. And that's not necessarily a bad idea, but it's not nearly as impactful as an actual installment loan. 
Um, and so, and so I think, I think like for a lot of these different companies, we hear a lot of things that like, you know, we want to do a credit builder card. We want to, you know, be able to start reporting their Netflix payments. And, um, I think the thing we always go back to them on is like, why couldn't you actually just split things into installments to try to turn this into your own little buy now pay later product. Um, and so there really is a big missed opportunity for consumers to start improving their scores this way. And I think that's why it's such a shame that most lenders don't report to any of the bureaus at all. One of the big ones, uh, reports to just Experian and that's it. And so mm-hmm. like, if you have a loan with, with most buy now pay later, check your credit karma report and you're going to see like, oh, that's really weird. These don't show up here. And it's because the two lenders, I mean, the two bureaus that credit karma pulls from are Equifax and TransUnion. So they don't actually see the loans. Um, and so you don't get the, the actual credit you deserve. And so it's like, we've noticed that this is a really big problem and, and that like ultimately, whether you're talking about score improvement from a buy now pay later point of view or any of these different products, that the actual financial health piece of this is that until people have accurate credit reports, there's not really much you can do to actually improve their scores. This is really a big part of the reason why Bloom pivoted to this direction and realizing that this was really the financial inclusion conversation that no one was having. And then unless we made it simpler, companies like Affirm, like Afterpay, like, like QuadPay, all these different things that are doing a really great job at actually providing access to credit aren't actually going to give the consumers the financial health bump they need because it's really difficult to do this type of metro to reporting. So how does Jack Dorsey's company Square buying Afterpay, the reason we're having this conversation now and not a different day, how does that impact the future of this space? Does this make it so they're going to get their act together sooner rather than later and this will be a part of credit reporting or do you think it it doesn't really make much of a difference on on the speed factor if i had to guess it's probably two or three things um the first is that um i i I made an outlandish statement a while ago but i'll repeat it which is that within the next 10 years i suspect that that um buy now pay later actually takes a really significant chunk out of credit card spend and credit card spend is huge at the moment. And is, is it going to be 20%? Is it going to be 30%? I don't know. But I think this accelerates that timeline. And because if you really look at Square, um, if, if I wanted to do an analysis for Square, my assumption would be that most Cash App customers don't have good FICO scores. Um, and so, you know, my, my guess would be somewhere between 580 to 620. Um, could it be higher? Could it be lower? I don't know. Um, but traditionally, you're not going to see like, you know, JP Morgan's most valued customer as like someone that's going to be on Cash App. And so the result being is that if, if Cash App wants to focus on actually giving loans to these customers and doing so in a manner that can improve their financial health, getting them a secured credit card is probably the first option they thought of. And it's not so that's super impactful. They don't have really high take rates. It improves the revolving utilization, but not by that much. So it's like that was like one option. They probably looked at doing unsecured credit cards and realized that the actual uh, program itself would be really difficult to fund because trying to raise and securitize loans for an average of 600 FICO is really hard, if not impossible. And so the result is that kind of leaves you with this option of why don't we start giving all these cash app consumers afterpay? And if you can start giving them afterpay, you have two particular things that happen. The first is that you're going to give a lot more people access to a lot less risky loans. The second thing that it does that I think for most uh, lenders that they, and, and even neobanks should really consider this is the degree to which if you're in the payments business, like, after, I mean, quad pay and after pay and a firm in and of themselves buy now pay later products are not super high margin as far as lending is concerned. They're extremely high margin if you start thinking of them in the concept of payments, which is let's take my one and a half percent interchange and let's actually supercharge that to something that might look more like 10% on average. And so you take a cash app customer, which traditionally is probably not going to be super high margin, and you make them significantly more high margin by capturing more of their spending in different places. 
Um, and the final thing within that is that of your afterpay customers that are going to ultimately show that they can repay over and over and over and over again, those people are going to improve their credit scores. They're going to positively select themselves for higher margin lending products over time. And then you're basically going to have this tier within Cash App, which is going to be, you're going to have a bunch of the regular Cash App consumers. And then if you're Cash App, you're going to see it as like this next kind of tier of like premium Cash App customers that are going to get access to unsecured credit cards and other types of loans. And that's really the group that Square would want to focus on in terms of like doing most of their cross-selling and hoping that they can get as many people from the lower tier to the upper tier to continue to sell them higher margin services. I think I think one thing that that um, a lot of people kind of miss in a lot of the lending conversations overall is the degree to which it's like cost of capital is what dictates your unit economics always. And so and so it doesn't matter if you have the best lending underwriting product ever that uses 20 million data points and is super predictive, if your cost of capital outweighs your ability to make interest payments on those consumers, you're going to have a negative vintage. And in fact, we've seen that in a lot of the lenders that have debuted in the last 10 years is that like people think they're really good underwriters because the VC back narrative is like, oh, more data is better. But most of them produce really poor, if not legitimately negative vintages. And so like this is all on kbra.com. Look up your favorite startup lender that is securitized in the last decade and you could find this out. Um, but the reason that ends up making a really big difference is that if you're square and you're not actually able to get access to cost of capital at the cost of a bank, you really need to think about how you're going to be able to get cheaper cost of capital. And if you don't need that much capital to service a bunch of customers within Cash App, and you can ultimately get them onto higher margin products that are going to allow you to raise a cheaper cost of capital because you've seen them perform over time. That's probably the biggest move for Square here is like, how do we actually improve the financial health of customers over time and do that by expanding the total footprint of who we work with? Is that what they're doing? I don't know. Like, I, I have no inside info on that. I haven't talked to anyone about it. Um, but but I, I would say that, that that if it were me, that would be my move trying to get into more premium financial services products on top of that existing growing cash app audience. Is there any downside to having this extra data in credit reports? You touched on it a little bit in that you assume a data means one thing, but when you enter a different credit cycle, it could mean a different thing. But our, what we've talked a lot about the, the positive impacts of having something like your Netflix subscription or me paying for furniture in four installments versus putting it on my credit card. How nice that would be to um, have that be reported to to the credit bureaus. But what are potential downsides of that? I think I think, again, for for the bureaus in terms of just accepting buy now, pay later outside of the idea of like alternative data. Um, so, so let's, let's unpack that of like buy now, pay later versus traditional products and then alternative data versus traditional data or what we put in traditional data in quotes. Um, the downside for the bureaus and accepting buy now, pay later, if they do accept it is the small dollar concept of like, of like, cool, someone repays $150 of a loan. And therefore like we, we see them on the same level or at the same FICO score level as someone who's repaid, you know, $10,000 of a loan. It's ultimately not the same comparison. I think it's a good positive selecting step, but that would be the potential downside for a bureau. That being said, I think this goes back to the idea of like, one, what is beneficial for consumers, which is it's beneficial for consumers to everything reported. And then I think the second thing is that for the bureau, you have to look at this and be like, look, this isn't going anywhere. This isn't changing the idea that like this might ultimately take up 30% of credit card spend and we're just going to ignore it as a payment. Um, I think that's to the detriment of everyone in the system. Uh, but it's detriment to the buy now pay laters. It's a detriment to the consumer. It's a detriment to other lenders because other lenders should be able to see the degree to which like that is ultimately an on-time payment and that people who make on-time payments are more likely to make more on-time payments. So I think that's the first stage of this. I think the second stage of this conversation is like, well, what about alternative data period? Um, 
And so, and so like one of, one of my favorite conversations that I, I like to have is just like, you know, what is positive and negative selection at all? Um, and so um, people, people have met with me privately. I, I do this, like, like how to teach you how to underwrite in two minutes conversation. Um, and uh, we, we can do it as a game right now, or I can just do the whole spiel here. Uh, but, but Julie, if you were to, if you were to attempt to find the most physically fit person in New York, where would you start? Jim. Great. And if you were to find the least physically fit person in New York, where would you start? Uh, it pains me to say this because I love donuts, but like a donut shop or pizza parlor, <laughs> I don't know, something like that. <laughs> Great. And do you acknowledge that the most healthy person in New York might happen to be frequenting a donut shop today? I, I'm, I'm fairly fit and I like going to donut shops. So yes. <laughs> there you go. And do you also acknowledge that the least healthy person in New York might have shown up at a gym and decided to get their act together today? 100%. <laughs> awesome. And so when you start to look at this, basically what we're just covering is what is positive and negative selection. It is not a surefire thing that someone who shows up to the gym is fit as the same way it's not a surefire thing that someone sh shows up to the donut shop is not fit. Now, take the same thing and apply it to financial health. Um, now, if I were to say the same thing to you and be like, hey, like, do you think that whether or not someone has a good SAT score has any bearing on their ability to be uh, physically fit? What would you say? I, say, I have no idea. I guess I could see some areas where like if they study really hard, they might be really good at working out too. But you also might be a nerd where you study and you're not athletic at all. <laughs> Great. And how many lawyers do you know that don't manage their finance as well? No idea. No idea. I, I like to, I don't know that many lawyers, which I consider a good thing. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, so so and one one interesting thing is uh, maybe maybe this is a data point is that like a really frequent small business loan that you make is usually doctors, lawyers and things like that. And that like a, a big mm. part of that is like, more effectively helping them manage the, the finances of the practice. Um, but the point being is that being smart is not the equivalent of actually managing your money well. Mm -hmm. Um, and so when we're, when we start saying things in terms of like what data we want to take, we want to stick to data that actually allows us to positively select loans and stay away from data that doesn't necessarily add any signal one way or another. Like, like I said, is like, do you have any bearing on whether or not SATs matter? And your response was, I have no idea. And it's probably mm -hmm. the same thing of just being like, because you're smart, you manage your money. Well, isn't necessarily true. Um, in fact, you can make an argument that a lot of people who don't have SAT scores at all probably manage their money extremely well because they need to be tight about it because they don't have good opportunities. So it's like, um, it, it neither gives positive or negative selection. And so I think what we've seen traditionally is that a lot of the data that we're not, uh, a lot of the data that gets used ultimately doesn't provide noise one way or another. Um, and so the result being is that it doesn't actually help people make better loans. Um, and in a lot of instances, you've seen a lot of the alternative data underwriters would have been significantly better off if they just looked at FICO and nothing else. Like, like, um, and so the result of that is like, look, FICO is actually one of the most optimized credit systems in the world. Um, most people in most countries can't get access to uh, traditional credit at all. Like if you go into like Nairobi, you're not getting a loan through like a traditional bank. You're getting it through someone like Tala who's going to use a ton of mobile phone data. Um, that being said, in the United States, we're not willing to sign up for giving up that much data. Like where do I walk around? How is my, for my contact list formatted? Do I play zombie racing games? Um, which are all things Tala has like publicly talked about as the things they use in, in underwriting in some capacity. And so it's like, it's like, the result being is that you end up in a, in a particular system where it's like adding more data doesn't necessarily mean better, better signal. And that actually the traditional data works pretty well. The things that lenders want to look for are more things like, uh, how does someone actually put their job description in, in their, um, in their, in their occupation? Someone being like, I'm a CEO versus I'm a chief executive officer is going to perform a lot less because they ultimately don't take the diligence to write out their full job description. Someone who applies for a loan at three in the morning is a lot less likely to pay back a loan than someone who applies for a loan at five in the afternoon.
Um, and so there's actually a lot of application data and even a lot of like advertising data that ends up being a lot more effective in underwriting than the idea that like we're going to take these random data points from over here and plug them back in. And so like how does that really back to buy now, pay later? It's actually the, the degree to which like what you're getting positive selection on is what is the person buying? And so that's a lot of the more interesting data. Can you report on that? Probably not. But an example would be it's like you're not getting positive selection on someone who's buying groceries as an example. Everyone buys groceries, so it doesn't teach you anything. Mm -hmm. That being said, also, people are probably willing to default on a loan if it means that they can you know, make ends meet. That being said, someone who buys a mattress that is like over $1,000 probably thought a little bit about that purchase. Um, <laughs> and so traditionally speaking, that might be a really good place for buy now, pay later to exist. And that's why they were one of our firm's early partners. Um, and so there's a bunch of different things there. And that's how like buy now, pay later ultimately gets com its competitive advantage is starting to look at certain types of um, certain types of merchants and going after those and not going after others. Um, I think there's a, that's that's probably a big reason why you haven't seen buy now, pay later go into like, you know, again, like Whole Foods. <laughs> um, right. Maybe Whole Foods would possibly select as a means of like, okay, cool. People who go shop at Whole Foods are probably like maybe a little bit more affluent. That being said, again, if I'm going to get a buy now, pay later loan on this, it's probably not as likely. So um, there's 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 um, there's there's some things within that that might change, but ultimately it's like I'm not. Uh, and one thing I think you know because of what Bloom does, I think I get pegged as like a, a like an alternative data like like Luddite. <laughs> and and the point isn't that like alternative data is like neither good nor bad. It's that we don't have the regulatory environment to support it. So right. so until until we're able to change some stuff around Reg B that allows us to use more data that allows us to actually go and underwrite uh, these types of loans, it doesn't really matter whether or not it's like good or bad because it's it's not even really within the vector of possibility. I'm I'm a huge supporter of bringing in more alternative data as a means of underwriting people who don't have traditional financial identity, um, and so I would hope that that starts to exist in some capacity and that those people can have those loans reported positively so that they can get access to higher margin products within the system. But like really, as it stands, unless if you can work with Bank of America or J.P. Morgan, you really aren't going to have a file at all three bureaus at this point. And so, getting more customers the ability to start doing that is what's going to be really important. And if a firm and Afterpay and those types of customers can start doing that, I think that's a really big move. On that note, we are at time. Thank you again for joining us, Matt. Sorry again about your, your Riverside issues to begin with, but I think we got this all set. My producer will do his job getting it all put together. Sorry in advance, Paul. We love you. But if you want to find Matt, find him on Twitter. We'll put his link in the show notes. And if you want to learn more about FinTech Today, check out our newsletter or broader FinTech in general. Go to fintechtoday.co and sign up. We'll keep you updated on what's going on, like these big Square and Afterpay deals. Thank you, Matt. Thank you.